I should say. Last Sunday, we tackled part one of Job's response to Eliphaz in Job chapter 6. We looked at Job's defense, his despair, his disappointment, and his demand, and we learned that believers should seek God instead of answers in the midst of personal suffering. That's what we unpacked. That's what we talked about really toward the end of the sermon. We have this burning desire to know why we're suffering, why we're going through the things we're going through, and um, we may never be given the answers as to why this has happened or that has happened, and so that can be a very fruitless and despairing pursuit. And so what we need to do is just pursue God, just find our rest in Him, find, uh, know that He's our shelter, and just seek Him. We don't need answers. We need God Himself. And uh, I got a lot of uh, interesting feedback after that sermon, so apparently um, most of you agreed with it. So, amen. This morning we're going to tackle part two. Uh, please take your Bibles and turn to Job chapter 7. I know it seems like we're biting off these really big chunks every week, but the way that the, uh, the text is written, it really needs to be handled this way. I'm not usually comfortable with dealing with such large sections, but um, the way that it's written, it really has to be done that way. And in this particular section, the battered patriarch Job, he turns his attention, he's, he's responding to Eliphaz, but he really turns his attention away from Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, his three friends, and he, and he turns his attention away from them, and he turns it toward heaven and, and prays to God. So chapter 7 should be viewed as as a prayer. It really is a prayer to God. And his prayer expresses four things. Um, and that's another way that we'll be dissecting these large sections. I, I break it up into smaller sections with one header. Uh, but today we're going to be looking at what he expressed in his prayer. And uh, it's a series of things here. I would say Job's burden is expressed in verses 1 through 5. And he expresses in, in verses 6 through 10, his brevity, he talks about the shortness of his life and these things. And then we see in 11 through 16, we see Job's bitterness. And really, we see bitterness through the whole text, but really, it's, it's really focused uh, in verses 11 through 16. And then lastly, we will see Job's bewilderment or confusion in the last set of verses 17 through 21. So we've got Job's burden, Job's brevity, Job's bitterness, and Job's bewilderment. That is how I've broken up this passage. And uh, so whatever notes you take, put them under those, those headers or those headings. I'd like to pray before we get to work here. Lord, um, just been really burdened by all that's been happening in our nation lately and, and, and even distracted by it. And uh, Lord, I ask now that uh, I think all of us probably feel that way, and we ask that you help to refocus us now during this time as we engage our hearts to you and uh, in worship, and in particular, we're going to worship you through the ministry and preaching of your word, and so help us just to be focused on your word and help us to hear it and uh, to understand it and comprehend it and, and to apply it and to live it out. Uh, teach us about your love today. Um, this chapters probably, Lord, I have to confess to you, probably the most disturbing chapter that I've looked at thus far in, in Job. And uh, just the, the, the bitterness of this, this battered man and how he's really pointing his finger at you and uh, complaining 
to you and uh, just his perspective of you and how it's become skewed and twisted. And uh, so, Lord, I know that uh, bitterness can cause that in all of us. And so we ask, Lord, that um, you convict us through your word and you lead us in the truth and point us to Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, that his love for us never changes. And it's, it's never impacted by even our own sin or foolishness or by circumstances or by um, anything that He is the same always, and His love for us is always the same. So help us to understand that today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we can pick up where we left off last Sunday. We would begin with our first point here, and that would be Job's burden, verses 1 through 5, but we'll start at verses 1 through 3. This is what Job says next. Again, he's been talking to Eliphaz, responding to Eliphaz's first speech, but now he's is still speaking to Eliphaz in a sense, but really he's looking up to heaven and praying to God. This is his prayer. It begins in verse 1. He says, Has not man had a hard, or has not man a hard service on earth? Does he not have a hard service on earth? And are not his days like the days of a hired hand? In verse 2, he says, Like a slave who longs for the shadow, and like a hired hand who looks for his wages. So I am allotted months of emptiness and nights of misery are apportioned to me. So Job begins by expressing part of his burden here. Really what he's burdened by is um, his sad, empty, and what he perceives to be his hopeless life. This is what he's burdened by, his sad, empty, hopeless life. And, And through poetry, he likens himself to a hired hand and to a slave. Um, Slaves would long for the shadow, the poetic phrase there, which means they spent their days anticipating sundown. Okay, so if if you were a slave and and you you had to do hard labor, because most slaves did, um, you would be anticipating the evening time. You would be waiting for that. Let's say you'd been out like uh, case in point would be in Egypt where the Israelites are making the bricks and stuff. So, so during the day, very hot, you're very tired, um, and it's a miserable situation. So you would be longing for evening time because in the evening time is when you get a break, you get rest. And that's what the shadow represents. The shadows represents dusk and nightfall. Slaves would spend their days anticipating sundown, that's the shadows, because during the evenings they could finally rest from what Job calls hard service on earth. A hired hand also longed for the shadow, sundown, because evening is when he would get paid his wages. An interesting point of fact, back in the and in antiquity, in, during antiquity, the, the ancient days like Job's day, when you were a regular laborer, you would literally get paid when the sun went down every day. After you got done working all day and doing whatever it is that you did, you could count on getting paid. And the scripture even talks about, in the Old Testament, talks about being fair to workers and making sure that they get their pay at the end of the day. So in the same way that a slave would long for the shadow, sundown, so would a hired hand, so would a... Uh, uh, a man who does hard service or labor. He would wait for sundown because that's when he would get paid and he could go home 
and, and have a bowl of matzo ball soup and then, you know, rest through the evening and then get up in the morning and go back to his job and do that all over again. Job is like a hired hand. He considers himself to be like a hired hand. He considers himself to be like a slave in that he longs for the shadow. But we're not talking about sundown for this fellow. We're talking about death. The shadow of death is what he longs for. He, he wants death to come because he believes that is the only way he's going to get out of this tribulation, out of, this, out of his travail. He thinks that, that the shadow of death or death itself will bring him rest from his hard service, from his calamity. This is what he's expressing here. In verse 3, Job differentiates himself from an actual hired hand or slave. They get rest and wages at sundown, right? But he gets months of emptiness and nights of misery. So he's saying that he longs for the shadows like those men, but even when the shadows come, even then he doesn't get the rest that he wants. He doesn't get the wage of the rest. He doesn't get any of that. He has months of emptiness that he's dealing with. He's been dealing with this for months. He's got nights of, of, of misery. In other words, the shadow, sundown, brings him no rest, brings him no relief. In fact, if, if you've ever been through any sort of suffering or trial or anything like that, um, or you're mourning the loss of a loved one or whatever, you, you know that during the day you do reasonably well because you keep busy with things. But it's at night when the pain seems to intensify, right? It's when you lay down and you're trying to relax. It's when you're trying to relax and trying to go to sleep when, when the thoughts come back into your mind and you start remembering the, that loved one or whatever it is. And nights can be very brutal and very cruel to those who suffer. And, and, and that is precisely what, what Job is saying here. I've got nights of misery He's like a, a hired hand whose wages are withheld at the end of the day, or like a, a slave who has to work graveyard. He just has to work through the night. The terms allotted and apportioned reflect divine sovereignty. Job believes that God has sovereignly marked out his life and deliberately allotted to him months of emptiness and apportioned to him nights of misery. He, he, he is convinced that, because he believes in the sovereignty of God, he is convinced that, that everything that has befallen him, all of his travail and trouble, is coming through the hand of God. And, and his friends are working to convince him of that, right? And they're tying it to the fact that he's got some kind of hidden sin in his life. But he believes in God's sovereignty, and so... So he believes God has allotted and apportioned these difficult times to him. It's kind of interesting, his, his view of evil. He doesn't seem to have much theology that, that deals with Satan, the adversary, right? I mean, when, when evil things happen to us, no matter what it is, we usually ascribe it to him. We don't, you know, we believe in God's sovereignty, but we don't firstly say, well, God is tormenting me. We believe Satan is behind that. And maybe Satan is working through others that are causing some of that torment. But his, his view of evil is, is, is a bit underdeveloped like his view in many other things. He has a kind of an underdeveloped theology. And he just, we know God is sovereign, but God is doing this to me is what he says. God is doing this to me. 
And what he can't figure out, and this might be the thing that plagues him more than the boils or anything else, is why. He can't figure out why would God do this to him. He knows he's a, a blameless, righteous man. I, he, he knows he's not Jesus. He knows he's a sinner. That's made clear in this text. But, but he also knows that there's, there's no particular sin that he's walking in at the moment that would warrant this kind of what I would perceive to be extreme discipline, right? I mean, wealth, gone. Children, gone. Health, gone. If, if that's God's discipline toward him, that's some serious discipline. That's like disciplinary action from God bringing you right up to the point of death. And, and what he can't figure out is he believes God is sovereign. He believes this is somehow coming through his hands, but he just can't figure out why. And this is why last week I talked to you about don't try to figure out why you're going through stuff. Just go to the God of rest. Just go to him. But he can't figure it out. He, he, doesn't, he believes in his mind and his heart that he doesn't deserve this kind of treatment from God. And, and most of his speeches and, and prayers that he's offering up to God it, it pertain to that. I, I just can't get my mind around why you're doing this to me. This text, is, it, it makes that so clear. But we have to remember that in Job's worldview and theology, there is no category for righteous suffering. You know, in his mind, his theology, his understanding of God and the truth, that righteous people don't suffer. They, they only get blessed by God. It's the unrighteous that suffer. God makes them suffer. He doesn't make his holy, righteous, blameless, upright people suffer. He doesn't have a category for that. In his mind, God would never, ever allow something like this to happen to someone who was innocent in some sense. And yet, because of his two-dimensional worldview and theology, God was about to teach him the truth and broaden his worldview and theology. Uh, one, of the, one of the big points of the entire book of Job is for God to teach and train Job that, guess what, the righteous suffer. There is a category for righteous suffering. That's one of the big points of this book. See, if you don't understand righteous suffering, that, that, is, that it is entirely possible and it happens that, that righteous people can suffer, if you don't understand that, if you don't have a category in your theology for that, you'll never understand Jesus because he's the ultimate example of righteous suffering. The man did no wrong, no sin. He committed no sin. And yet he suffered at a far higher level than Job ever would. If you don't understand this, and, and God's point really is, is to teach Job this. He will learn that a third category exists, and the righteous do, in fact, suffer. This is one of the main thrusts of this book. It shows how a righteous man suffered. And ultimately, in the ultimate sense, it points us to the Gospels where we see the ultimate righteous man suffer the better Job, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's really the main point of the book. Not for God to vindicate himself or to vindicate Job and to, and to prove that, that you know, true believers worship God for who he is and not just what he gives them. That, that's a big point in the book, but the bigger point is that there does exist a category for righteous suffering. 
And the book of Job points to the ultimate example of that, and that's Jesus Christ. All Scripture points to Jesus Christ, especially Job. Verses 4 and 5, Job continues his, his prayerful complaint. When I lie down, I say, when shall I rise? Or when shall I arise? And he says, but the night is long, and I am full of tossing till dawn. My flesh is clothed. This is, this is insanely graphic. My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens, then breaks out afresh. Job is continuing to express through this prayer his, his burden. He, in this text, in these few verses, shows us that he is burdened by anxiety, that he is burdened by insomnia, that he is burdened by his diseased flesh. When he would lie down in the evening, he would begin to worry about not being able to sleep through the night. He wondered when he would wake up. That's why he says, when shall I arise? You, you know you've been suffering some insomnia when you're kind of, you know, you're really like exhausted, but you really can't sleep, but you lie down and you start to doze off, but then you start to worry, I wonder if I'm going to wake up in a couple hours. I wonder if I'll wake up at 1 a.m. like last night, then I'll be up all night. I wonder if I'll wake up at 3 a.m. like I did on Monday, right? Have you ever done that? I have done that. When you lie down and you're like, you're, you're filled with anxiousness. You're already worried about waking up. What if I can't sleep through the night? I can't keep doing this. How many of us have said that to ourselves? This is what he's, he's doing here. I, I lie down. The first thing I say is, when am I going to get up? Is it going to be 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m.? What's going to happen here? Maybe, maybe I go to bed at 10 p.m. and I wake up at 11 p.m. and then I'm up all night. This is his anxiety. He's completely concerned about this. Because what? In all the previous nights, rather than sleeping through every one of those nights, he would do what? He would toss and turn till dawn. He says, tossing till dawn. As soon as the man laid down, he was, he was awake and tossing and tossing and tossing. He just couldn't sleep. As I said, verse 5 is, is very graphic. Job tells us that his flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. Well, we know that he has loathsome sores from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet. Okay, he has, he has boils and blisters and he looks leprous. And really, in, 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 in a way, he has kind of a flesh-devouring ailment where his flesh is just like imploding. And what eventually shows up when you have decay? Maggots. The worms are maggots. The man is covered with devouring maggots. Can you imagine? No wonder his friends were, were horrified when they took a look at him. They, they couldn't get their minds around what was going on here. These maggots were feeding on his loathsome sores. We see loathsome sores in chapter 2, verse 7. The dirt was probably not actual dirt, but ash from the ash heap, right? Chapter 2, verse 8. He was sitting on an ash heap. He had covered himself in ashes. That was a kind of bitter mourning, a physical expression of your sorrow. And so he's covered in, in maggots, and he's covered in ash. And really, in the poetry here, the poetic 
parallel is that worms, maggots, and dirt, they symbolize death. These are symbols of death. What happens with dead bodies? And today we put them in caskets and bury them or we cremate them. But back then what they did was they wrapped them up loosely and buried them or they placed them in a tomb. But in Job's day, dead bodies were essentially covered with dirt, right? They were buried and then consumed by worms. Uh, this is repeated, this idea is repeated in chapter 21, verse 26. So if you have worms and dirt, that symbolizes burial and decomposure and, uh, or decomposition and the worms that come and all these sorts of things. It's, it's just really, really um, sort of disgusting and graphic how he describes his physical self here. This is, this is what he is. This is what he looks like. This is what he has going and, and then the moment that his flesh began to heal, or as he says, harden, right? Because it's all loose and open and festering. But the minute that he starts to scab over and it starts to harden, it breaks out afresh. As soon as the wounds begin to heal, they, it just starts over. The cycle starts over. Why? I think primarily because he tossed and turned all night. He's rolling around on his wounds. They get disturbed. The cycle repeats itself Day after day, night after night, he gets no rest, he gets no relief, he gets no reprieve, no break from the maggots. If you ask me, in my humble opinion, this is a living hell. This is a living hell for this man. This is living death. It's living death. And when you boil it down, you have the greatest of all the people of these, chapter 1, verse 3, he had become a living, rotting corpse, a zombie, the literal walking dead. Not some dumb show on AMC. This guy was like a rotting zombie, fully alive, fully coherent, and yet just covered in dirt and worms and wounds and sores. The man's complaint to God, in my opinion, is justified. God never nukes him for that. God does nuke him toward the end of the book for pretending to be wiser than God, but God allows Job to complain in this prayer to him, and rightfully so. That's Job's burden, all of that. Now we look at Job's brevity, verses 6 through 10. We pick it up at 6. He says, My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. Job's nights were filled with sleeplessness and, and tossing, and they were long. I think we could all agree with him here on this point that when you have insomnia, you're wracked with anxiety or all these thoughts. I just get this busy mind at night sometimes, which prohibits me from sleeping. But would we all agree, if you've ever been through that, for those of us who've been through this, I think we would all agree that those nights are like the longest nights ever. Are they not? They just keep going and going, and you're like, man, am I ever going to get to sleep, or when is the sun going to come up so I can just start my day and be a walking dead? And, and that's what he's saying here. Each night seems like an eternity to those who cannot sleep, especially if it's, if it's being caused by pain. And he tells us that that, you know, hey, the nights are long. He, he's made that clear. The nights are long, but he tells us that the days are turbo fast. 
like a weaver's shuttle. You ever seen a weaver using a shuttle? He says, my days pass by like that. The nights are long and endless, but the days are very fast. That's what he's saying. He's using poetry to describe the brevity of his life, how life is quickly passing him by with no achievements, no delight, no hope. That's what he's saying. Verse 7, remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never see good, never again see good, is what he says. To further illustrate this brevity of his life, Job reminds God that his life is, it's really, it, it, yeah, it's, it, his life is passing by as swift as a, as a weaver's shuttle, but it's going by even faster than that, like a single breath. In other words, life is short like a single breath. It comes and goes like, like a, a single inhale and exhale. <sighs> life is that fast to Job. At least the days are. And I think we would all agree that life is like a breath when we compare it to eternity. Right? We think, well, 70, 80 years, whatever, that's, that's, that's pretty good. You know, that's not too bad. That's not all that short. I don't know about you. But I remember when I was 18, 19, I closed my eyes and reopened them, and I was 50. What happened? It's a blur. It goes by so fast. Our children, they go from here to here to here, and then we go like this. Get out of the house, right? I mean, it's just crazy. Life is, it is the brevity of life. It's so short. It's so fast. And, and with him, it's it just... It's, it's swifter than a single breath. Other words such as wind and mist, vapor, these other words are used to describe the brevity of life in Scripture. Uh, Psalm 78, verse 39, James 4, 14. He was convinced too as well, and this is probably the saddest part of verse 7. He was convinced that life would pass him by before he had any chance to see good again. He's got no hope. The man has no hope. And you know what? He was wrong. At the end of the book, in chapter 42, we are told that the Lord blessed Job with good fortune, good friends, good children, good health, and a good long life. Chapter 42, verses 10 through 16. But you know what? At this point, when you're covered in worms and dirt, and you're miserable, and you can't sleep, and you've lost everything, yeah, it can certainly seem like you'll never see good again. You will feel like... You will despair of the idea that this, your circumstances will never change. You know, I've talked about some of my struggles in the past and where I went through 10 years of depression, and one of the greatest fears and anxieties I had during that time was, will this ever end? Will I ever be able to get back to some kind of normalcy? I, I don't want to suffer from depression and anxiety for the rest of my life. In fact, I don't think I can. This is what happens when you go through severe pain for a long time or depression or any of these things. You have a couple of weeks of insomnia, you'll be thinking, I cannot do this the rest of my life. Lord, you're going to have to intervene. You don't start to wonder if you'll ever see sleep again. And the more children you have, the less sleep you'll see. So stop having kids, but keep having them in RHC because we've got to grow this congregation. <laughs> this is where he's at. This is what he's thinking. Verse 8, the eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. 
while your eyes are on me, I shall be gone. Job thought, believed that the grave would hide him from the eyes of man and from the eyes of God. Really what he's doing is he's urging God to act before it is too late, before he dies and enters the grave and becomes hidden from God's sight forever and ever. Uh, as I said earlier, Job had an underdeveloped view of God in, in many ways. You know, he had only two categories, no category for righteous suffering. He has some twisted kind of views. And we have to remember, give him some grace here, he didn't have the Bible like we do. I mean, Scripture had not been penned yet. In fact, this book may have been the first book in Scripture that was ever penned. And so he does not have access to the information that we have. But he had, he had here, and he expresses here, an underdeveloped view of divine omnipresence. He knew that God was present and could see him, but he thought this would end at death. You know, I, I know you can see me, I know you can hear me, God, but when I die, you won't be able to see me or hear me, and so you better act now before it's too late, because once I'm gone, I'm gone. That's his theology. But the Bible teaches very clearly that God's presence is not limited by death or anything. He is everywhere at all times. No, He doesn't manifest Himself in the rocks and in the trees and all that. That's, that's, a, that's a false religion. But His presence isn't restricted by anything. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere all at once. That's how big and awesome our God is. He is in the world. He is in the grave. He is in heaven. He is in hell all at once. Oh, He doesn't go to hell. Yes, He does. He's the reason why hell is so terrible. Because He, in all His wrath, no mercy, no grace, is there to torment and punish those who choose not to believe in Jesus Christ. God is the one who makes hell terrifying, not the devil. In fact, hell is a place of punishment for the devil. He's not down there with pitchfork tormenting people, and neither is God. But God's presence in hell is what makes it terrifying. It is a, a terrible thing, it says in Hebrews 10, a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a terrifying thing. He is everywhere. He is omnipresence, uh, omnipresent. There is no where to hide from God. I think people today, and Adam and Eve certainly our first parents, thought they could hide from God, but you cannot hide from God. There is no where to hide. You could, you could go into a foxhole. It doesn't matter. You can go into a lead-walled building. He can see you. There's nowhere to hide. There's no way to escape His presence. Proverbs 15.3 expresses this brilliantly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and on the good. And Job thought, because his life was, you know, his nights were long, but his days were passing by so quickly, and he's very, very sick and very ill. He figured he was about to die, and that would be it. He would go to the grave, and God's eyes would be off him forever. This is what he thinks. But he was wrong. He was not about to die. He was not about to go to the grave. And God's eyes would never be off him because God is omnipresent. It's amazing that, that we teach Scripture here and we have to correct. We're not correcting Scripture. We're correcting 
the thoughts and theology of a person here. And we have to do that with the three friends a lot more. Verses 9 and 10, Job continues in his lament to God, As the cloud fades and vanishes, so he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. He returns no more to his house, nor does his place know him anymore. Job likens the rapid appearance and disappearance of clouds to the brevity of life. Clouds quickly form and fade, and in his opinion, so do men. And the Scripture makes this clear in other places. Again, life is like a vapor. It's like wind, right? Job is 100% right about how life comes and goes like clouds. Clouds, are, clouds and men are here one moment and gone the next. And guess what? No two clouds are completely alike. Did you know that? There are no twin clouds. When a cloud comes and goes, it is literally gone forever. Other clouds may form in its place, but they will not be identical to the previous cloud in size, shape, or density. No two clouds are ever the same. When you see a cloud come and go, it's gone. Isn't that sad? Not really. But Job, what he's saying here is he's using this poetry and he's using this metaphor of clouds or this illustration of clouds. He's, he's using it, what, to say that this is true of man. I don't think Job cares about clouds. This is all true of man. When he, when he dies, he disappears forever like a cloud. He goes down to Sheol, never to come up. This is what he says. And he will never return to his house, and he will be essentially forgotten. In this context, Sheol refers to the grave, to the tomb, to a burial. It does not refer to the underworld where unbelievers are sent to await final judgment. It, it's not that. Uh, the King James provides a better rendering, I think. It says, as the cloud is consumed and vanish, vanisheth away, so he that goeth down to the grave shall come up no more. Now, there is a major, major defect in Job's metaphor and theology here. Major. This is probably the biggest bundle, bundling there is in his theology. He leaves something so essential out. Resurrection. Robert Alden wrote, Disbelief in the resurrection could hardly be affirmed more bluntly than it is here. Okay, so... So just, just correcting Job's understanding and theology here, the grave is not the final destination for Old Testament saints like Job. Or we should say it, it, it wasn't the final destination for them. There is a future resurrection in which the Old Testament saints shall be raised from the dead and given new glorified bodies to rule and reign with Christ on earth. This is so clear in, in, throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, but in particularly in Daniel 12, chapter 12, verse 2, and then over in the New Testament, Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 and 6, or 4 through 6. So, so, so Job is wrong in that thinking that once I go to the grave, that's it. I'll stay there forever. I'll never return to my house. God will never see me again. No, 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 no. Job, Job, there's a resurrection. You're, the grave is not your final destination, and, and plus God is omnipresent, so He'll see you even when you're in the grave. And the grave is, is not the final destination for New Testament saints like Peter, Paul, and Mary, remember them, and us. Dead in Christ shall, 
shall be raised from the dead and given new glorified bodies to rule and reign with Christ on earth. Right? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. Even unbelievers shall be raised from the dead. <laughs> Even unbelievers. Why? To face judgment. John chapter 5, verses 28 through 30, Jesus lays that out there. Resurrection is, is one of the most important realities and key doctrines in Scripture. Paul illustrates its significance in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Okay, we've been told that we're not essential by the governor. Let me tell you what's essential, churches. Let me tell you what's essential. Resurrection. If resurrection, if Jesus did not get raised, then our faith is nothing. It's worthless. It's foolish. Not, not only because then we don't have a resurrection, but because part of our salvation, our salvation is really hinged on His death, burial, and resurrection. If He isn't raised, we aren't saved. We're still in our sins. And in a crazy way, it seems that, that this is what Job believes, that when I go to the grave, that's it. There's a denying of the resurrection here, in a sense. We have to ask the question, did Job not believe in resurrection? Well, maybe. I mean, in our text here, it certainly would appear that he didn't understand it or know that it was there, know that it was a reality and a future reality. Maybe he didn't believe in it, but then in chapter 9, he seems to affirm it, or chapter 19, pardon me, verses 25 through 27a, he says this, listen to this, I mean, this is like contradicting things here for him, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold. Okay, that is a powerful statement in support of resurrection. And yet what we're reading in our particular chapter and verse now, he's like, the grave's it. I, maybe, maybe it's just that he was so saddened and distraught over his situation that he had just forgotten truth. I don't know. It's kind of hard to tell when you've got our text and then you've got chapter 19. It's kind of hard to tell where Job lands on the issue, but I think that we need to be less concerned about where he lands and more concerned about ourselves. Where do we land on the issue? If we do not believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, our faith is futile, and we are still in our sins. If we do not believe in the resurrection of the saints that will follow Later on, when Jesus comes, the grave would appear to be the final destination of these lowly bodies of ours. And what would happen? This thinking would rob us of hope. Because part of our hope as Christians is secured by the fact that we will be given new bodies. That this body that you have, Kay, this body I have, and boy, is it out of shape. Mine is out of shape. These bodies that we have... This is not the final body. Part of our hope is, is in that we will get glorified bodies which are like the glorified body of the Lord Jesus Christ when He rose. This is what Scripture tells us. If we don't get the bodies, then 
what do we got? We stay in the grave. The body stays in the grave, but the soul stays with Him. I guess that would be it. Well, that's not what Scripture teaches. That's not at all what Scripture teaches. We would be robbed of hope if... We would be robbed of salvation if Jesus hasn't risen. We would be robbed of hope if we're not going to rise one day and get new bodies. I'm counting on a new body. I don't know about you. I mean, if, if you can somehow work that out now, that'd be awesome. He's like, I can. Go to the gym. It's like, come on. I don't want to do it. Right? Eat healthy. Go to the gym. That's how I'll do it for you. No, that's me doing it. It's me doing it through you. Eh, whatever. Job doesn't affirm resurrection in, in our text, but he does later in 19. Uh, number three, Job's bitterness, verses 11 through 16. We pick it up at 11. This is what he says next. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Job's ordeal brought bitterness. Understandably, right? His friends told him he was acting like a foolish windbag. Chapter 5, verse 3, chapter 8, verse 2. He declares before them and God that he will not restrain his mouth. I might be a foolish bag of wind. I might be a bagpipe speaker just speaking out a bunch of funky sounds and a bunch of foolishness, but I'll tell you what, I am not going to cease my complaining. This is what he says. I'm going to continue to speak about my anguish, the anguish that I feel. I'm going to complain about the bitterness that I have in my soul. This is what he says through poetry. Verse 12, and this is like, huh? This is where poetry and me go... Therefore, nope, that's the wrong verse, 12, am I the sea or a sea monster? <laughs> what? That you set a guard on, over me? This is what he tells God. Am I, am I the sea or a sea monster that you have set a guard over me, God? This is a protest to God. <laughs> it seems very strange at first, like, you know, you're treating me like the sea or a sea monster, God and you're guarding me. What is that all about? It seems just like a, a weird protest. But we need to remember that in the stories of the ancient Canaanites and others, the stories they told about the gods, you had a god named Si or Yam, and he was a hostile god. In fact, the Canaanites thought the sea was a god. And you know when the sea gets swirling and twirling, that's a hostile god. That's a dangerous god. And then they also closely allied to this god, the sea, called Yam, the sea monster, or which was pronounced Tannin. They had a, a sea monster that existed within the sea, and that sea monster was a terrifying creature, Tannin. In fact, we were introduced to Tannin in chapter 3, verse 8, and in our text, he is referred to as Leviathan. See, Leviathan, I believe, was a true dinosaur, but it was also a mythological beast that came out of the sea and that could just destroy an entire city. 
Job is, is not referring to the sea in general or to any old sea creature. He speaks of the sea and of the sea monster. He has, these are specific references. He is protesting that the Almighty has set a guard over him as if he were a dangerous sea monster like Leviathan, like Tannin. In antiquity, Leviathan was the personification of supernatural evil. Maybe the ancient Canaanites' version of Satan, this dragon-like beast that would come up out of the sea and destroy. Job is, is telling God, I am not like Tannin. I am not like Yam, the, this, this sea god. I, I'm not like them. So why do I have to be constantly watched and guarded? Right? If, if, if a creature like this existed, you would think that, that mankind would keep close tabs on it before it comes into downtown Ceres and wreaks havoc, right? Actually, it'd probably be more like Monterey because that's closer to the sea. This is his complaint. You're, you're treating me like I'm, I'm one of these beasts that has to be guarded and, and shackled and chained and imprisoned. He's saying, God, I, I, you've done all these things to me. It feels like you're guarding me like the sea monster, but, but I'm really not a threat. I'm just an insignificant man. This is what he's saying. He, he feels that he's, he's being watched. He even calls, in, in, in a couple lines later, he calls God the watcher of men. He feels like he's being watched closely, like he's a real threat to the cosmos. The all-seeing, ever-watchful eyes of God usually bring hope and comfort to suffering saints, right? Psalm 33, verse 18. I don't know about you, but I've been in some dark times, and, and knowing that God is watching over me and, and there with me, that has brought my soul comfort, my spirit comfort. But, but for Job, get out of here, God. Quit looking at me. Quit watching me. Quit, quit shackling and guarding me like I'm Tannin, like I'm Leviathan. Because of bitterness, this is what's so dangerous about bitterness. Because of bitterness, God's eyes and, and presence became a threat to Job. Bitterness is, is, is so dangerous. It twists our, our understanding of, of truth. It distorts our view of God. That's what's happened here. The God who, who saved Job and redeemed Job and blessed Job's life and had done all these things for Job. And keep in mind, Job lost everything, but he never lost his salvation. He never lost the love of God. But the, the trials that he was going through created bitterness in his life and just twisted his understanding. He, he doesn't think that God loves him anymore. We, we need to never allow bitterness to get a foothold in our lives because this is what it leads to, a twisted view of truth, misunderstanding the God of love toward us, misunderstanding Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, as I prayed up front. Bitterness will take you here where Job is. 
You know, to be going through everything that he's going through, and then because of bitterness, to believe that God has become his adversary, how much worse does that make his situation? The God of comfort is no longer a God of comfort to Job. He has become a God of condemnation. Verses 13 through 15, Job continues his prayerful complaint. When I say, my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. Oh. This is a continuation of his protest to God. He charges the Almighty with destroying his attempts to find comfort in his bed and ease on his couch through terrifying dreams, terrifying visions. It's bad enough that you've taken everything and struck me with all of this. I can't figure out why. That's bad enough. But the moment I try to go to sleep, the wounds open, and then I have horrific nightmares. God, why are you doing this to me? That's what he's saying. The question is, did God send Job these horrible nightmares? Because that's really what dreams and visions are here. These are not prophetic visions. Dreams and visions means nightmares. This is nightmare on whatever street he lived on, not Elm Street. Did God send these horrible nightmares to Job? No, I don't believe so at all. I believe that when Job tried to rest, he began to relive the tragedies that had recently come upon him. As soon as he closed his eyes, he could see those messengers you know, knocking on his door and that he could hear their fateful words. He envisioned the armed Sabians and, and Chaldeans slaughtering his servants, putting them to the sword, stealing all his wealth, all his flocks. He could see this as he laid down at night, as he started to doze off. He could, these were the dreams. He could see these things happening. He envisioned the, the fire of God, lightning falling from heaven upon his servants and burning his servants up and burning up all his sheep. He could see this in his mind's eye. He envisioned the imploded home of his oldest son and the bodies of his dead children strewn about. You see, he wasn't physically there to see these things. He was at home when they happened, and those messengers came and told him. But I tell you what, since he hadn't seen those things with his own eyes, he had to imagine what they looked like. And as soon as he laid down at night, that's what he started imagining. The poor man probably would fall asleep at times and then wake up crying out the names of his children. Mary! These were the dreams and visions that flooded his mind at night and robbed him, stripped him of comfort, stripped him of ease. Even when he sat on the couch, he would think of these things. In bitterness, Job says he would rather be strangled to death than to go on living. I mean, look at the graphic. Now, this is a graphic passage. He would rather be choked. He would rather have 
hands placed around his neck, squeezed to the point where his eyeballs are popping out and he cannot breathe. He would rather have that mode and that kind of death than to keep suffering the way that he's suffering. This is a bitter man. Verse 16, he just comes right out and says it. I loathe my life. Translation, I hate my life. I hate my life. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone. Listen to what he tells God. Leave me alone for my days are a breath. In final protest, Job tells God that he hates his life. While living forever sounds good to the healthy and happy, such a prospect is much less desirable to the sick and suffering. For Job, life was not worth living. Notice what he says in the middle of the verse, leave me alone. He is telling God to leave him alone. Uh, Francis Anderson wrote, since Job's life is so fragile and brief, and since God is terrorizing him, this is what Job believes, his only wish is for God to leave him alone. Bitterness had led Job to see God as his adversary and to call for his immediate exit. I tell you, if we believe God is the source of our troubles, it makes sense that we would tell God to leave us alone, doesn't it? Yeah, that's what Job believed and that's what he did. If you're not going to kill me and strike me down and end my life in suffering, then just leave me the heck alone. Just leave me alone. This is what he says. He is a bitter man. Verse or, uh, Number four, Job's bewilderment, his confusion, verses 17 through 21. We pick it up at 17 and 18. He says, what is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? Visit him every morning and test him at every moment. Job was bewildered. He was confused as to why the Almighty, the, the God of the universe, would pay such close attention to mankind, especially to Job himself. It was as if Job had said to God, Surely you must have something better to do in the cosmos than torment me. Why have you set your heart on me? Why do you visit me every morning and test me at every moment? I'm nothing. I'm, I'm insignificant. My life is like a disappearing cloud. It's a vapor. It's over. Why on earth have I gained your attention like this? I'm not worth it. This is what he's saying. Now, Scripture answers this question for Job. It, it, it answers the question for anyone who wonders why God has any interest in man at all. Because that's what he's saying. What is man that you would make so much of him? Well, why do you pay attention to us? We're nothing. We're like ants down here. But Scripture answers this question as to why God would pay any attention to man. Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 through 8. Cameron read that text for us earlier. David tells us that God has an interest in man because man bears his image, because man is crowned with heavenly glory and honor, and because man exercises dominion on earth for God. That's what that psalm says. God has an interest in man. Proverbs 16, verse 4, Solomon tells us that God has an interest in man because he uses man to fulfill his purposes, even the wicked for the day of trouble. The New Testament tells us that 
God has an interest in man because He chose some for salvation. Ephesians 1, 3, predestined that group to, to adoption as sons and daughters. Ephesians 1, 4, and rescued and redeemed them through the person and finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. Job may have been bewildered as to why God paid close attention to him or any attention to man at all, but Scripture is absolutely clear on this. In fact, we are told precisely why God was interested in Job in chapters 1 and 2. He was using Job to prove to Satan and to all creation that believers, true believers, worship him for who he is, not for what he gives. Job, Job has plays a major part in the plan and will of God. This is why God is paying close attention to him. But he doesn't understand that right now. It seems that Job's bewilderment was primarily centered on his suffering. He can't figure out what he had done to cause God to focus on him in this way to array terror against him, chapter 6, verse 4. He's thinking in his mind, I'm, I, I know I'm blameless and upright. I know I'm walking not in any kind of habitual sin right now, but I must have committed a doozy to get this. This is what he thinks. Verse 19, how, how long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? Job pleads with God. It was as if he had said, are you going to keep looking at me forever? Why won't you leave me alone? Can you not look away long enough for me to swallow my spit? I can't even get a gulp here. Robert Alden writes again, Ordinarily, it is a good thing to have God's eye on you, but Job wished that God would stop watching him because it meant to him only condemnation and grief, although this was far from the truth. Verses 20 and 21. He says, If I sin... What do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. Job does not know why God has treated him as something to be smitten. He has already asked his friends to detect unsuspected sin in his life, chapter 6, verse 24. Right? Hey, if there's sin in my life, please let me know what it is so I can correct this. Now he asks God to help him in the same way. Job knows that he is a sinner. He understands this. The phrase, if I sin, states that quite candidly, does it not? He knows he's a sinner. He knows he has the potential to sin. He knows he's sinned. He knows how it works. He understands human depravity. And he also knows that, that God's remedy for sin is forgiveness. But he cannot understand. He cannot understand why he has not been forgiven since he has already shown his penitence and offered sacrifices. Chapter 1, verse 5. He is unaware of any further sin requiring repentance, certainly none of a magnitude to warrant the extreme assault God is making on him now. His 
sufferings are, are so beyond the proportion of any sin he knows of that there must be some explanation beyond the categories of guilt and punishment. He appeals to God to make his agony endurable by making it meaningful. If I have sinned, reveal it. I will confess it. I will repent. I will offer any goat I can find. All Job has known about God, he still believes. But God's inexplicable ways have bewildered his mind really to the breaking point. To the breaking point. He cannot figure out what he's done to warrant what he's experiencing. And he is pointing his finger at God. Really what he's telling God is that you are treating me unjustly. Closing. God was watching Job. Yeah. The battered patriarch was right about that. God had his eyes on Job. Job, Job could detect it. He knew. Well, he didn't want God's eyes on him, but he knew that God was watching him. God watches all his people, all his people, all the time. Psalm 34, 15, all the time. He's got his eyes on Brenda right now. He's got his eyes on Dustin back there. He's got his eyes on Harry. He's got his eyes on me. He's got his eyes on you. Always, always has his eyes on us. Always. Never takes them off. Doesn't have to. Doesn't have to sleep, doesn't have to rest. But God, yes, he was looking at Job, but God was not giving Job the stink eye like Job thought he was. No. God was not looking at Job with disappointment or eyes of anger eyes of retribution, eyes of punishment. No, that's what Job thought, but no, God was, was watching His servant with silent compassion and admiration until the test was complete and it was time for God to state His approval of Job publicly, which is precisely what he does toward the end of the book. God wasn't giving him the stink eye. He was looking on him with compassion and even admiration. Remember why he chose Job for this test. There is no one like him on earth. That's admiration. Like Job, we all go through difficult times. We all suffer losses. We all experience various afflictions. No one, no one escapes these things. No one, especially the people of God. We need to be careful not to let bitterness creep into our lives like Job did. It can twist our understanding of truth. It can distort our view of God. 
Job began to see the Almighty as his adversary and attacker. He told God, leave me alone. Bitterness can have a similar effect on us. This is why we must kill it before it gains a foothold in our lives. We must not give ourselves over to bitterness. And we need to understand that trials and tribulations are not reflections of God's heart toward us. Did you hear me? Let me repeat that because that might be the most important thing I say all morning. Trials and tribulations are not reflections of God's heart toward us. Write that down. Write down, they're not reflections of God's heart toward me. They are what I would call necessary evils that God works through to accomplish His purposes and sanctify His people. That's what trials and tribulations are. They are tools, they they stink and they're hard and they're difficult and they're evil at times, but they are tools that God uses to accomplish His will, His purposes on earth, and His sanctifying purposes in our lives. That's what they are. They are not reflections of His heart toward you. Job thought that what was happening to him was a reflection of God's heart toward him. That's what the bitterness caused. That's the mistake. There is, however, something that does reflect God's heart toward us. It's not trials and tribulations. It stands tall and wide. It's made of wood. It is splintery. It has nails and blood stains. It is the cross. It is where justice and mercy embraced. It is where the Son of God gave His life for us and our measureless debt was paid. If we find ourselves, because we're going through trials and tribulations and and, and travail and and difficulty and suffering, whether it be health, suffering, whatever it is, if and when we find ourselves going through those things, we could begin to doubt God's love for us. And that is where we need to look to the cross. That's when we need to look to the cross. Because it reminds us of the enduring, everlasting love of God for His people. It speaks louder than trials, louder than tribulation, louder than travail, louder than suffering. The cross shouts God's love over us in every circumstance, in every situation, forever forever. As we enter communion, we need to remember the cross. More importantly, 
we need to remember the Christ who died on the cross. The elements we are about to partake of represent His broken body and, and the blood that He shed for the removal and remission of our sin. Do not think of these elements as, as mere bread and juice. Don't make the mistake of doing that. Think of them as expressions of God's love. He is, he is graciously giving us these, giving us the, the symbols, right, right, right? The bread and juice. He is graciously giving us the bread and juice. They are symbols of His Son's sacrifice for the purpose. He gives them to us for the purpose of nourishing us spiritually so that we can press on and keep fighting the good fight of faith. This, this is an expression of His love. He is inviting us now, here and now, to His supper table to dine with Him and to be nourished spiritually. This is love. It's pure love. But we must first evaluate ourselves. Job didn't have any sin in his life at that moment. But we might. And this is the time for us to confess that sin and to repent of that sin. If you're an unbeliever, you need to abstain and patiently wait for this time to end. You don't take the bread and juice. That's to bring condemnation on yourself. This is for God's people and God's people alone. That is not to say, unbeliever, that God does not love you. That's not to say that He has no plan to save you. Maybe that's what He's saying to you this morning. Maybe today, if you repent and believe, this will be your first communion. Maybe your first real communion. I'd like to lift up our time to the Lord, and then Pastor Cameron and I will pass the elements around, okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for the struggle of Job and his heartfelt prayer to You. Lord, I know that You totally redeemed the situation. We can forward to the final chapters and see what happens there, but Lord, You want us to focus on the here and now and what we've studied today, and we need to know, Lord, that bitterness is, a, is an easy thing to let into our lives because of our circumstances. We need to know that, that it can twist our understanding of You. We need to know, Lord, that, that trials and tribulations in no way, shape, or form express how You feel about us, that the cross has made that clear forever, that communion has made that clear forever. So, Lord, as we enter this time of communion, I pray, Lord, that we would confess our sin, 
that we would express our great gratitude to you for what you have done for us, for your great love for us. In fact, it's because you love us that we can love you at all. May we show you our humble affection and love through this time of reflection, of confession, and of great gratitude and thanks to you. Thank you for being so, so good to us. Father, we don't need answers. We need you. Thank you for giving yourself to us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name.